Hello, and welcome to episode number 395 of the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more, subscribe, support the show, leave a review on Apple, Spotify, wherever it might be. On this one here, it is delightful because I have what I always like, multiple guests, and these two guests are the co-authors of this fine book, The Age of Scientific Wellness. We have Leroy Hood and Nathan Price, both of you welcome to the show. Pleasure. Armin, great to be with you. Very glad to have you both on. Uh, Leroy, you're an MD and PhD. Nathan, you're a PhD, both doctors in the building. And this is about scientific wellness, a category that I've been speaking about quite a bit with different authors that I'll mention along the way. It's a very important topic. Before we get into that, uh, the subtitle is Why the Future of Medicine is Personalized, Predictive, Data-Rich, and In Your Hands. It's always nice when something's practical and changeable. It's within your control. It gives you a bit of agency. It also, I think, builds self-esteem in some ways. A little bit as far as biography, Leroy developed the DNA synthesizing technology that made possible the Human Genome Project, which is very substantial and known by many who know science. Is co-founder for the Institute of Systems Biology, pioneer in the field of systems biology, proteomics, and P4 medicine. Won the Kyoto Prize, Lasker Award, the Heinz Award, and the National Medal of Science. A prolific career, which is wonderful. Shout-outs to that, Leroy. That's fabulous. Nathan, as well, Chief Science Officer, CSO of Thorn Health Tech and Professor at the Institute for Systems Biology, the same institute, ISB, selected as an emerging leader in health and medicine by the National Academy of Medicine. He received the Grace A. Goldsmith Award for his work on scientific wellness and has co-authored over 200 peer-reviewed scientific publications, very prolific in that category as well. Prolific nature is wonderful. Now, you're both very accomplished, which is fabulous. The idea of the book as a pairing, why pair? Why not as separate individuals? I know you've worked together at ISB. What caused the pairing? What's the linkage between you two? Do you want to start with your history, Nathan, in the sense the definition? I'll start with that. Yeah, so Lee and I decided to write the book together uh, really because we did all the work behind the book uh, together, at least for the last decade or so. And Lee and I have known each other for... We initially met about 20 years ago, so it's been um, a long time. So we really became incredibly interested in this topic of scientific wellness, and you know, Lee had been a big hero of mine in science for many of the reasons for which he won all those fabulous awards that you just talked about. And I, I was, uh, I, of course, I'm much younger and, and had looked up to him for a long time, and so uh, we connected. Uh, I... Uh, initially, you know, as as a young person, and you know, worked as a postdoc in his lab, and then later on, after my faculty position at Illinois, came back, and we we really spent a lot of time working together on this, and eventually even merged our lab groups together at one point uh, because we were so in sync in terms of just wanting to build this future, and and did a lot of it together. And so that when we got around to the book, then it really became a function of us. Uh, wanting to get this vision that we had worked uh, together on and all the discoveries and excitement and momentum. And we really wanted to bring that to uh, a general audience. So that that really was the genesis of deciding to write this together. I would say the other point I would make is we were enormously complementary in skills. So I was a biologist. I was interested in technology development Those are two essential features of scientific wellness. 
And Nathan had skills in, in data analysis, which are absolutely central to this data-driven health, which is the engine for scientific wellness. Question that comes to mind is, are there any gaps in your abilities that one fills the other and the other has a gap and that's filled by the other? Is there any of that between you two? I would say all the major gaps are filled. That isn't to say there aren't expertises that neither of us share, but I think the major dimensions of what we needed to do between the two of us, we were in, we were in good shape to basically invent a new field of precision population health, where you gathered lots of data on each individual and use that data to optimize their own wellness and or to prevent disease. I once had a posting where I talked about how data is the new oil. This was many, many years ago. And it's obvious that it has been the item and then it's been analyzed by data analysts and uh, algorithmic processors for years now. We are seeing high levels of detail in every aspect of our existence. Can you tell us what is the revolution right now? What does it look like uh, upcoming? What should the av average person think of the data-driven revolution, Nathan? Yeah, so if you think about kind of the current challenges and opportunities that we have before us in medicine, they're very different than when the foundations of medicine were set up in the last century. So we have a healthcare system, which is really disease care, right? That's very focused on make a diagnosis, give a drug. And in the last century, when we really got into this for infectious disease, that worked really well. We were able to identify the cause of the disease, the pathogen, kill it, and it made a huge difference. And we essentially eradicated a lot of infectious diseases that were the top killers of, of all of us. There's this morbid statistic that, you know, in the last century at the beginning, uh, that every third coffin was filled with the body of a child who had died from an infectious disease. That's not true anymore. So that's a huge advance. Now, if you, cut, if you fast forward to now, what we have is, are, are, is a system that is not very successful at dealing with chronic disease. So if we think about our major killers, uh, diabetes has, has grown markedly over the, fa uh, the last decades. Uh, Alzheimer's is, on, is a $500 billion a year problem on pace to become a trillion dollar a year problem. We get drugs that have mild slowdowns, you know, slight slowdowns in the rate of decline that are worth tens of billions of dollars you know, overnight. Uh, but that's kind of the state of medicine that we're in now. And so what we're talking about in terms of a revolution is that we need to structure healthcare so that it's not focused such on such late stage disease intervention that is largely not that successful, but instead it needs to be oriented towards a wellness driven model where we can apply the precision tools we have now, deep measurements, the ability to build things like digital twins, and AI technologies that now let us to give personalization at scale in a way that wasn't possible before. So the big argument is that we have now the tools and the needs to remake medicine under a wellness paradigm and not just under a disease paradigm. The other point I would make that I think is very relevant is if you look at the U.S. today, we are the only major nation in the world that's lost 2.5 years in its average age till death uh, uh, in the past uh, 10 years or so. And it doesn't look like that's turning around in any very big way. 
And in fact, I have a very good friend in Britain who said all healthcare systems out there are unsustainable, both in terms of providing quality of care and accelerating costs of information. And what we would argue is this big data-driven health is the revolution we need to convert our current healthcare system to one that has high quality, that deals with aging, that can manage chronic diseases effectively, and is going to start to turn around the cost of healthcare in striking ways. Is there something to this concept that the thing you are appearing to be pushing back from, you build it up. So an example is, let's say somebody's always thinking, oh, that person is going to leave me. I don't know when they're going to leave me, but I feel like they're going to leave me. I'm worried they're going to leave me. They're going to leave you. Same thing with if it's always disease-based, diseases must be the issue. We're working with disease. You almost make diseases the item. Now the whole industry is for that, and you almost propagate that condition. You're almost bringing diseases into your world by only targeting every, looking at everything in that way. Is there something to that? I think there's something to it. And, and the focus that we would like to be able to tell people is, look, a data-driven approach to health gives you the ability to assess your individual health trajectory and to optimize it. And we feel in the not-too-distant future, it will optimize it to the point where you can live out into your 90s or even 100s, be mentally agile, physically alert, and have a very different lifestyle than most elderly citizens have today. That's the revolution that's coming. Mm -hmm. Now, a few people came to mind while I was reading the book that I have spoken with or what they have spoken about, and it relates directly with the material in the book. One is very clear. Mr. David Sinclair, who is on the inside cover of the book, wrote Lifespan. Lifespan is extension of life. Then health span is like uh, related to health during that existence, it looks like we're switching the framework a little bit, is as we extend life, are there other details of late life that we are now processing that before we would have just let go by the wayside, but now that people are living to 80, 90, 100, 110, some things that we wouldn't take into account now, suddenly we are, okay, how can we manage that and look at every detail to keep it going? Yeah, so we've definitely focused a lot on this concept of health span. Uh, you know, under the rubric of scientific wellness, as we call it in the book. So the idea here is is that it's absolutely 100% possible today to extend your health span significantly. You know, I think that's not even a controversial statement, right? You're just able to live functionally well, you know, into your into your 90s potentially uh, or beyond, and stay functionally active, physically clear. And we talk about all the different ways that you can go about uh, making that more likely in your life as we go through this. And as we restructure the funda foundations of, of healthcare and the research behind healthcare as well, so that we're really studying health in the depth that we study disease, we should be able to get better and better at that. The extension of lifespan is a harder challenge. Uh, you know, there's definitely you know, intriguing results that suggest that we can do this. And we know that that can be extended in animal models, for example. Uh, but those things are really not precisely the same thing. And it is one of those issues because it's so interesting when you start talking to people out there, some people really don't want to extend their lifespan because in their head, they're thinking, I'm going to be 
trapped in this horrible situation in a hospital for 10 years more, and I don't want that. But if you get your mindset around the extension of health span, it's pretty hard to argue that you wouldn't want that. So that it, it's a big, uh, a big focus of everything we do. Attaching quality to it is a very important part so that the person doesn't think, now I'm just going to have an extended period of disappointment or agony. That's true. Quality extension. Now, as far as tracking items, other individual comes to mind. I don't know, Brian Johnson, he spoke, he's spoken a lot about tracking every little detail in his life and extending his age by quite a bit, as mentioned in this book as well. If a person tracks every item and is able to, let's say, like with the Horvath clock, uh, keep their metal methylation from increasing and every item is managed in a binary fashion, does that pause aging in full if every uh, cellular item can be managed? Leroy. Well, we did a very interesting uh, series of experiments probably eight or ten years ago where we had a population of 5,000 individuals where we'd done very detailed data analysis over a period of four years. And because these people uh, ranged in age from 21 to 93, we were able to develop an algorithm that allowed one to determine your biological age by analyzing the analytes in the blood, clinical chemistries, proteins, or metabolites. And what this biological age is, of course, is a measure of the age your body says you are, as opposed to what your birthday says you are. The younger you are in biological age, the more uh, effectively you're aging and so forth. And what we demonstrated with the Aravale Scientific Wellness Program is for women, for every year they stayed in the program, they lost a year and a half of biological age. So over the four years, lost six years of biological age. And for men, it was 0.8 years. And so that was uh, a little under four years of biological age lost. And actually, Nathan lost about 10 years of biological age. So there, there are two things that come out of this that are intriguing. One, do we have the ability that to control and reduce the biological age and thus avoid progression into chronic diseases that always comes with later biological ages. And number two, can we use the analytes that we've used in the algorithm to actually optimize the aging process still further? And the preliminary answer to those questions appears to be yes, we can that we can optimize aging in a way that plays a very complementary role with scientific wellness that's improving wellness and avoiding disease. And it's these two things together, we think, that will push out and let us move into a health span that puts us in our 90s or better. So I think the ability to measure biological age is really the ability to measure your degree of wellness. And to be able to follow that and manipulate it opens up really exciting possibilities for preventing or at least slowing the aging process down. One thing I like about the topic in general is that it also gets you to focus on quality of your existence because then it makes you question, okay, 
what is the part I want to maintain? What is a life worth? What's the cool part of it? What do I want to expand? But you don't think about that until details like this show up. On a related note, comes to mind, how does, does the average person start using tracking material in 2023? Should it happen more on the scientific end and the average person should wait a couple of years before uh, tracking items or trying to extend their age by a little bit? Nathan, what are your thoughts on that? So, I mean, I would definitely say it's way worth doing already. So there's a lot of things in the marketplace that you can use uh, today in order to track various aspects of your health. Take Be proactive about this and get a, an inside view. And I'll, I'll give a few examples. Um, so, of course, we develop a lot of these even at Thorne, where I'm chief science officer. Uh, but basically, one of the things that I think is really worthwhile tracking now is your microbiome. So the microbiome, right, is this you know, thousands of species of, of microbes that live in your gut or on your skin or in your mouth or basically all over you. So there are these other species, and they, they, they live on you, and they form an envelope through which every single thing that you interact with the environment passes through. So if, let's talk about gut microbiome in particular. So any food you eat, uh, any drug you take, any supplement you take, anything like that comes through, and there's the potential that the gut microbiome will modify that. So one of the things that's really important, I would argue, is to get a gut microbiome uh, test. Uh, and we've made this really easy for people. Uh, one of the things uh, that we did uh, over the last year or so was to develop something called the microbiome wipe. Uh, this is what it sounds like. So, so there's this old... The, the usual approach to getting a, a microbiome requires that you scoop up a little bit of your own feces into a vial, close it. Some of these have to go in a fridge. Most people keep food in their fridge, so maybe you're not so excited about that I'm in the freezer. But, but, but what this does is this allows you to wipe like normal. It's basically special toilet paper made out of a polymer. You then drop it in a vial, close the vial tightly, and then if you shake, it will dissolve away in 10 seconds, and we showed that you could get just as good DNA quality on this method, and we published that in Frontiers in Immunology last year. So that lowers the barrier to being able to do this kind of test, and then if you do this, you get a whole range of information about your health that will tell you the different species that are in there, but more importantly, functionally what they're doing. So certain... Um, Certain vitamins, for example, are made in the gut that your body uses. You can see if you have the bacteria to do that. Certain compounds like uh, that lead to TMAO, which is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. If you have certain uh, bacteria in your gut, it will take, for example, carnitine from red, from red meat and turn it into trimethylamine, which your liver turns into TMAO, which is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. But if you don't have those bacteria, that won't happen. Uh, you can see how it affects your digestion. Your, you can look at if you have any uh, disease-causing bacteria, it's so, and on and on and on. And so that's already really uh, useful. Uh, you can look at a variety of blood measures. Uh, we have a biological age test that, that Lee uh, referred to that uh, off of clinical labs. We do it that way because that today is the most uh, predictive for downstream health effects. But you can also get... Um, and we have a, a device that actually won MedTech's uh, medical device product of the year a couple days ago, which was an at-home, uh, painless, essentially painless, 
I'm not allowed to say painless exactly, but on a scale up to 10, zero to one is what people market. So it's very light uh, and you can get blood uh, off of that. Uh, we're doing this now in research studies uh, on, we've done it already for 20,000 people uh, looking at things like hemoglobin A1C and you get really good measurements off this. So there, there's a whole ecosystem that's, that is developing where you can get access to high quality information, personalized insights, personalized tests, and now with the advent of ChatGPT and all these, these other technologies, the next generation of this for, for delivering highly personalized uh, results in plain English is just, it's amazing. And it's, it's, that's going to happen lightning fast. That's a good point. The proliferation of something, that's a difficult part. What would have been the biggest holdup to this happening 10 years ago in some way, because some of the science already there, is it the technological ability to share with so many people what can be, get it to be like a, an ecosystem? What were the real holdups? I, I, think, I think there were two major holdups with Aravail and its failure uh, after a four year period of uh, scientific wellness. One was the cost of the measurements of the blood and the microbiome and the genome and so forth. So the cost of, of carrying out the assays to make the assessment. And I think too was the failure to have a doctor that could deliver results back because then it meant you could only deliver results that met, that de dealt with wellness rather than those that dealt with disease because of the FDA. And of course, both of those can be, uh, to a certain extent, circumvented more now. The costs have come, come down, at least cost per unit, protein and metabolite and things like that. And the programs that we're designing for the future have these people integrated in. But I will say uh, one thing that we should also point out is Back when we were taking a systems approach to thinking about healthcare, we came up with the rubric that healthcare should exhibit the four P's, predictive, preventive, personalized, and participatory. And the first three of those are actually, uh, they have to do with science, and we really know how to do those now and move forward. The fourth P, participatory, is all about how do you get a patient or a physician or a healthcare leader or a healthcare company or regulators or uh, so forth. How do you get the people that you have to convince to change from a system that's focused entirely on disease to a system that's focused more nearly on wellness and prevention? And that requires uh, psychology and sociology and education and all sorts of different kinds of things. And we're actually moving in directions to create the materials that can be used to bring people into knowledge about these enormous opportunities that we see by data-driven health. You're making me think of one concept when you said psychology and sociology too. When there's a friction, there's a certain view of something. What is the weight? Let's say they, uh, let's say doctors are. Do you wait until they more age out and people that are younger age in and are adaptive to what is potentially a better way to do things? Can you actually alter 
the view of current doctors or does it have to be like an ocean wave where there's so much compelling evidence where they say, all right, okay, we'll give it a go. What would you say on that? Well, I would say two things. One, leadership in the healthcare system is key. I talked to the CEO of a major healthcare system recently who had taken on the genomics as a creator of actionable possibilities and was actually using what we call pharmacogenomic examples that is, variants in genes that blocked your ability to use drugs and hence made some of the usage of those drugs dangerous in the context of your disease. And I said to him, well, how in the world did you ever persuade the physicians who have been notoriously resistant to using these pharmacogenomic examples? And he said, I found myself that I had a variant that really made a difference in a drug I'd been taking. And I was able to go to the physicians and tell them, this is my story, and I want you now to incorporate pharmacogenomic variants into the profiles you have for your patients. And by having an authority figure like that make it happen, the system adopted to pharmacogenomics very rapidly. That's a relevant point. It has to be a, sometimes like that, a hard hit, and then maybe personal in that context, and then suddenly, okay, all right, this is what we need to do. And then leadership does pass on. I've noticed that you take certain organizations and you alter the leader, and suddenly everything shifts underneath. So it shows you how important In that dramatic ways, was. absolutely, yeah. It's not light at all. It's almost like a new organization at that point, just based on what's passing down as the messaging or what's supported. Yeah, it's very impactful. The value of being a leader, which would be a separate topic of sorts, but very important. Now, yeah. in relation to there's tracking and materials such as that, there's also uh, better life efforts, training your brain to keep it sharp. I recently talked with uh, Helen Natal, neuroscientist, about how she studies speech and hearing over time and how uh, aging affects them and when dementia kicks in uh, how much of your work is about um, not the details of the internals, but um, efforts to maintain brain activity or uh, keep the body in healthy function? Maybe yeah. Nathan and I can talk about two different examples. I'll talk about brain health in general. What we have done is partnered with a friend of mine, Michael Merzenich, and his company Posit, which has digital methods for evaluating 25 different cognitive features in the human brain and doing it relatively simply. And not only do they have the ability to assess these different cognitive features, reaction time, depth of field, um, memory, and things like that, they have the ability to repair deficient cognitive features. He's carried out now more than 250 clinical trials on 10,000 patients. And one of the most fascinating was to look at nearly 1,000 patients that were 80 years or older and demonstrate with regard to major cognitive features, you could bring them back to what they should have been 
at their maximum ordinary level in the mid-30s or so. So the really key point about brain health is your brain is flexible, but you have to exercise it exactly as you exercise your heart if you're to keep it healthy your entire life. Yeah, and then and we've are looking really closely at how you can maintain the health of your brain over time, and this is something that we've focused a lot on over the last two and a half years or so at Thorne in, in particular. But basically, what we have now is a digital twin simulation, which we've done on 10 million people, that will that matches really well all the published data. We've we've looked at We've pulled in information from about 950 different papers to build this. We've compared it against 30 clinical trials and research studies. Uh, get very good predictive accuracy on this. But what it does is on a per person basis, it can take uh, information and then make a prediction about how many years of, of healthy brain life uh, we think is left at current trajectory. Um, so it will it, it uh, does a calculation on an estimated uh, time of dementia. But what it does that's even more important is that it, it suggests all kinds of different activities and interventions that you might do, and this is all in the lifestyle and dietary supplement type space. Um, this is, by the way, the, been the, the biggest effect ever on dementia that's been seen in clinical trials is the finger study, which does this. But what we've done is build this detailed physiologic model of how the brain maintains health. And then over time, what we can do is actually get a probability range, to, uh, identify what percentile of a responder uh, someone is likely to be right, based on these digital twin simulations, and then which combinations of interventions are likely to have a, a big effect. And we can quantitatively simulate that over the course of life. So this is going to be one of the first big examples of a digital twin that's going to hit into the uh, consumer, into the uh, marketplace uh, in the not too distant future. And so we will be centering uh, this capability around uh, developing and launching a brain health test. Uh, and also we'll be looking at ways that we can tie this together with physician partners and so forth so that we can get this into the medical system following, you know, proper clinical trials and all those kind of things. But it's an area that is uh, we're very excited about, and it gets into what we talk about in the age of scientific wellness, which is when we set out with this model, and Lee and I were very engaged in this at, you know, at, the, at the outset of this, but basically when we start this model, we didn't start it from the standpoint of, oh, we're going to build a model of Alzheimer's disease or something. It was how does the brain stay alive? Right? Your brain consumes 20% of your body's energy. It's 2% of your biomass. It's a huge energy hog. It has, these, it has constraints, things that it has to accomplish every day, every second of every day, in order to keep you alive. So we built, uh, working with uh, a colleague of ours, Tom Patterson, as we discussed in the book, uh, built out this sophisticated capability so that we can, in fact, monitor and uh, on a personalized basis, how these things fit together. So it really provides a roadmap. And there's still areas that we're gonna have to, um, you know, test out in prospective trials, but it does explain a huge amount of data out of the literature uh, already. So it's, uh, it's a capability we're really excited about as we go forward. There's an important theme here, before I link to cancer, which is a different topic I wanted to include, but 
the broad view is very important. I like that your view is not, okay, this is an Alzheimer's treatment. This is brain health. What does it need? It's broad. Same thing with like disease prevention seems more narrow. Like this is our focus and narrow view. Broad is the way that you look at it whole, whole, in a whole view and such that you don't miss some details. And that's always a short-term thing. And then you pay the price for that three, four, five years later. I will jump into that. And then before switching, what is a quality that keeps both of you thinking more broadly? Because that is an important point, I think. Yeah, I think for both of us, certainly, um, is that we're um, very interdisciplinary. So I think if you look at Lee's history or my history, not only do we have, you know, kind of our areas of deep expertise where, you know, where we've worked, but, you know, we really work across various fields. You know, I'm a computation person, uh, so I, you know, I've done done a lot. I've held, you know, faculty positions of different kinds, probably in, I don't know, a dozen different departments. Lee probably double that. Um, and, you know, but also biology, engineering, some, you know, some chemistry, some, you know, and so I think that, that we've just been, in addition to having, you know, your narrow areas that you're super deep expert at, I think there's a lot of just being a champion of, of interdisciplinary, uh, being interdisciplinary. And in fact, I think there's an interesting thing here because Lee was one of the early pioneers of, of, of being interdisciplinary. He has a very famous story, you know, of, of how he led all this at Caltech and got recruited by Bill Gates to start the first uh, Department of Molecular Biotechnology, which was arguably the first interdisciplinary department. And I mention that because I'm kind of a child of that revolution, because when I came up, you know, I was in bioengineering. So I kind of studied things that were hybrids already and really modeled after a lot of the things that, that Lee had built. So, so I kind of grew up in this interdisciplinary world that didn't really exist before, you know, Lee and a few other real pioneers kind of made that happen. So it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting dynamic that way. And, you know, a second answer to your question is not only is the cross-disciplinary important, the importance also comes from thinking big. Thinking about the future and about a direction you want to uh, catalyze change. And a beautiful example was the Genome Project back in 1985 was kind of unheard of by most biologists and overwhelming proposition. Most of them were against it. And yet we pushed that through, arguing that the genome, in a sense was the source code to understanding wellness and disease and all these different kinds of things. And more recently, in exactly the same way, we've moved from the genome on now to the phenome, which is essentially explaining how the human being changes as they go through their life developmental patterns and acknowledging that there are three major influences that determine how you look at any point in time, your genome, your behavior, and your environment. And we can assess those from the blood, from genome sequencing, digital health, all these things. And the big new vision is this is the genome phenome analysis 
is the real key to scientific wellness in the future. And the argument I'm pushing is we now need a second genome project, which will incorporate a million people over a 10-year period with genome-phenome analyses to check out and validate and overwhelmingly confirm all of the preliminary things that have come from the 5,000 people we looked at for four years in Arafail. And it is this program that will fundamentally change the quality of healthcare, will demonstrate that we can effectively control an individual's aging to optimize the health span, that we can deal with chronic diseases by detecting them years before they're actually seen, and finally, that we can reduce the cost of healthcare from its current four trillion by trillions of dollars by dealing with aging and chronic diseases and, uh, and the like. And it's this big vision idea that I think is so compelling to stretch your mind and say, how can we apply this? And Nathan, in a company context, is doing really important work to develop tools and strategies for beginning to approach some of these kinds of things. Uh, and I think they'll be absolutely central to the more academic efforts we're leading uh, in the context of this million-person project, which we call the Human Phenome Initiative. I like the naming and the relation to that <laughs> original project, because you want to build off something that was, so that's easy to take in. We did that, okay, now we're doing the next level. And it's like genome through time. It's like, uh, it was a physics term, it's like genome through time, which is kind of cool. I like the concept of thinking big. Uh, that's a wonderful feature that only, in my head, only those who think large are the ones who affect where we go because the others are not, they're basically saying like, I'm opting out versus the ones who are thinking big. They are part of the direction we go. Right, and then right. I had talked about that recently that we're, we can be like a vector like a vector, we have our magnitude and direction, and we go in some, uh, towards some point that we envision. So then it gives us purpose, and then that connects with self-esteem. And then as far as uh, multi-interdisciplinary, I would like the Santa Fe Institute, where they mix multiple disciplines. I've always liked that location, uh, the concept behind it. So I like that you mentioned that. Now- I Wouldn't agree with you more. It's kind of cool, it's like- It uh, is really cool, yeah. You're in the same, without the individuals that create the space for nonlinear thinking, then there wouldn't be, then Nathan comes through in that and it's already set up. It's like a nice home to be in. Right. Because if it was all completely linear, then it's like, oh, it's okay, but it's not exactly my place maybe. Now, looking at the binary elements, there's analysis on the internals, uh, taking it to an, a large case, something that's affected humans for a long time, cancer, that can be, I guess, binary in a way, binary in a way of looking at the details of that. How can tracking help us to pinpoint cancer growth development? How quickly it's changing? How does data and tracking help with that? So, well, I would say one major way that uh, is we were able to demonstrate in the 5,000 people in the Arafail population that some 167 of them transitioned from wellness to disease. Uh, 
And 35 of those were cancer. And in fact, the first cancer patient we looked at halfway through this program that transitioned to disease, we went back and interrogated blood that we'd drawn prior to the diagnosis and showed up to two years before her diagnosis, she had proteins that were quantitative expressions of a marker of that transition. And interestingly enough, many of those proteins mapped into disease-perturbed networks specific to stage four pancreatic cancer. We then went back and looked at 10 additional cancer cases and demonstrated more or less the same kind of thing for each. Although for different kinds of cancers, we saw different protein markers. So the idea is maybe we'll be able to detect chronic diseases if we do this genome phenome analysis regularly five to one year prior to the clinical manifestation of the disease and reverse the disease at that stage when it's simple and elegant to approach. And one very powerful way of thinking about approaching cancer early is to use some of the newest tools of immunotherapy where you turn the immune system on the cancer itself and actually kill it off at a very small stage before it really gets going. So anyway, that's an example of how we think we can really transform a disease like cancer, but we would apply that to all the major chronic diseases. We think for all of them, we'll be able to see the early markers and we'll be able to design strategies for early reversal so that in a 10-year period, perhaps one could think about diminishing chronic diseases by staggering numbers, 50% or so. And since 86% of our healthcare dollars at $4 trillion a year go to chronic diseases, that leads to big cost savings. And it's worth mentioning that you know, these uh, you know, early markers for cancers, uh, you know, via liquid biopsy, as they often call them, like from the blood, are really proliferating now because you get, um, you know, Grail's got a, a new large-scale panel that monitors for 50 different cancers, and that you know, we didn't have anything like that before and so forth. So it's a, it's a very active area that is, uh, you know, there's, there's some real promise, and you absolutely want to find cancer as early as you possibly can from a therapeutic perspective. And then the other element that's really key in cancers is the development of the immunotherapies, including in some cases ways that you can uh, kind of tailor make a, uh, a therapy or a response to the specifics of your particular cancer. That's still an expensive route, but it can be highly effective uh, when it works. And so there's a lot of effort that are going into kind of making those personalized approaches more uh, accessible and much more broadly of use. How much, Nathan, uh, is the bandwidth relevant as far as like uh, before, let's say you're communicating to a, through, to a phone through your thumb, it's very low bandwidth, but if we had a direct brain connection, it would be super fast. Same thing with the analysis of um, internal elements or the microbiome or cellular items. Is it that we have much more of a direct link to what's happening now than we did 10 years ago? So the speed of ability to figure out something versus trying to type a paragraph. 
there are a number of reasons why the state we're in now is radically better than 10 years ago for the implementation of the kind of things we talk about in the age of scientific wellness. So first, uh, the ability to make large-scale measurements is getting better and cheaper all the time. Uh, and so that is good. I gave a couple examples of, you know, even of what we've done at Thorne for, you know, making these easier. But there's a, a bunch of other advancements, obviously, across the field as a whole. So everything's getting cheaper and broader. So that's the first big bucket. The second is that the science is advancing uh, dramatically. You made this comment before, and Lee gave a lot of good uh, uh, answers about things that have changed. But another factor in there is that if you just look at what did we understand that we could say that was meaningful about the microbiome 10 years ago, a tiny fraction of today, 1%, 5% maybe of what we could say today. Genome, even just our analysis of the genome itself. So a, kind of a trivial example, but one that you can get in your head really well. When the genome first came out, people try, uh, one of the things that's really heritable is height. Right? Tall people have tall kids. Short people tend to have short kids. That's mostly true. So you can see that it's heritable. But in the early days, people tried to find a gene for height. It doesn't exist. They tried to find clusters of genes or set of genes or different variants that would predict height, but you couldn't do it. You fast forward to now, and height is potentially the most predictable trait by genetics. But you know how many variants it took that we use now to make a good prediction of height from the genome? It's over 180,000, but it predicts very well. But you've got to have a whole bunch of information. Well, this, so that's so. First is the big data. The second is that the science and the the interventions are much better. I mean, even over the last year or so, we published a couple papers with Sean Gibbons, uh, who's our microbiome uh, leader at ISB that Lee and I work with, around the microbiome. So we looked at oh, there's a there are two features that predict in your microbiome, at least in the Aravel population, who was going to go on to lose weight and who wouldn't, and you know, we just learned that, and it really makes a big difference if you have a gene content in your microbiome that uh, will break down complex carbohydrates into short-chain fatty acids. It's easier to lose weight. If it breaks them down into simple sugars, it's harder. Uh, a second example, turns out the microbiome is highly predictive of how, how well a statin will work at lowering LDL cholesterol, and conversely, how likely it is that that statin will trigger an increase in diabetes. That's way more predictable from the microbiome than it is from the genome. Uh, that was a published in MED, the flagship journal of, of Cell Press uh, last year, uh, and that wasn't known before. Anyway, there's many, many of these kind of discoveries, and they're happening all the time. So there's multiomic data, there's the science, and then it's the computation. And that's what we came back to on the AI. We, I mentioned these uh, new digital twin capabilities that are emerging. But let's talk about the thing that every, on, on everyone's mind right now, which are these large language models like ChatGPT and so forth, and the ability for us to think about delivering personalized information, both gathering personalized information, because you can talk in plain English into, the, into these devices. It will answer you. You can tailor responses so you can get rid of a lot of the inaccuracies, you know, the problems that, that are being worked through right now. But as you get into that, like when we started Aravel, the ability to deliver personalized insights in plain English, Im impossible other than by people doing it manually, right? But now these kind of large language models enable a degree of personalization that unthinkable even a couple years ago. 
uh, unthinkable maybe five months ago, depending on when you, when you first saw this thing, right? And so it is – so you pull those three things together, the big data, the advances in science, and the ability to deploy with AI, and it's just a totally different world. And so what Lee and I are arguing in the age of scientific wellness is we need to rethink fundamentally how we set up our whole biomedical and healthcare enterprise because it should not at this stage – be so focused on disease and giving you a drug when you're way downstream because we can now predict things. We have the capacity from the standpoint of measurements and the standpoint of AI to build an entire system that is centered around the extension of health span and trying to push our healthy lives out as far as possible. And that is now the way that we should structure this whole enterprise. That's incredibly hard because we have the inertia of everything that's there already. But it's well worth it because we're getting super high costs and not very good returns on the way that we do healthcare now. And we could get radically better if we shifted to a wellness model. I like that point there. Also, I like that I, I always knew that uh, height was a polygenic trait, but 180,000, that is so much. To that blew my that. mind when I learned that about a year ago. I was like, wow, it's amazing stuff. <laughs> And it's like it explains a, about 60% of the height. So there are more variants out there to be discovered. Mm -hmm. When I thought of that, I thought, okay, that's why that's potentially a good chunk of reason why height has a value to it. It's connected to a representation of a lot of things. So that may be some evolutionary item to that. One last item I wanted to bring to mind. In recent years, I've talked with various individuals, including like, let's say this was a book on AI, for example, uh, Rama Chalapa. And I've talked with various AI people but it didn't have its moment until chat GPT that was mentioned, has been mentioned, and it's the news of the time. Before chat GPT, it almost would be a, in a niche space and the general public would not really be paying too much attention to its usage. And so it had like its moment, suddenly now it's like the moment before the moment and after is like a different world. Does, does healthcare treatment have that moment upcoming? Is it even connected to chat GPT directly now that we've mentioned that? Or when do you predict like a night and day moment in the personal health category? That'll be my last question to both of you. I, I would say we would definitely argue that healthcare's moment is upcoming. Uh, our view is that we'll actually be able to educate properly a chat GPT system, large language model system, so that one can put into that system the very complex genome-phenome data of an individual patient and have it derive the tens of actionable possibilities that may arise that could improve your wellness or let you avoid disease. And I think it will uniquely take you in all directions where you optimize your brain health, your body health, and your gut microbiome health in an extremely broad context that no single physician could ever manage. And what this requires is that uh, the large language model system translate these actionable possibilities into AI hints that are delivered to physicians that one, say what exactly the actionable possibility is and what the patient must do, but two, 
confer the intellectual and scientific validness of this initiative, this actionable possibility, so the physician will accept it. So we think what we call hyperscale AI is actually going to be the unique aid for doctors being able to deal with every aspect of a patient's health and to give them the dimensionality of a whole array of physician specialists and to do so in a context, they'll know what to do and they'll believe in the actionable possibility from a scientific point of view. And that is going to be a transformation of healthcare that's unbelievable. And it will be very powerful, again, in letting us focus on wellness and on prevention as opposed to disease. Yeah, and to me, I think, I agree with all the things that Leah said. To me, the big breakthrough moment is going to be when we're able to pull this all together into one system where we're, you know, we're really going through a trial. And I think this might be you know, around the deployment of like the digital twins that we talked about right, with the large language models, with the measurement. But basically take that into a population and show that you can dramatically reduce the incidence of disease. I think that's, you know, that's the essence of what we have to show. And I think once people get their minds wrapped around that this can make a huge difference and it's just like so concretely proven in a large scale group, like that will be the moment that that makes a big difference. We've seen it so far on, you know, on thousands on thousands of people. We have lots of evidence of all the things that have been learned off of this uh, can make a big difference in your life today. But showing that in a, a population like that where you can really navigate around and reduce disease through these personalized predictions, I think that is going to be a, a huge breakthrough moment. That is very informative. It feels like it's just on the way. And then once it shows up, it'll be a night and day difference in our general health care, which is a huge issue. I think it's the what are the prevailing issues of our time. Yep. Doc, Dr. Leroy Hood, Dr. Nathan Price, authors of this fine book. I would like to thank you for having joined, provided quite a bit of knowledge in the category. And it feels like a space as right about it's time to um, have a substantial impact on the well-being of individuals. Thank you both for being part of this discussion. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Armin. Great to be with you. Glad to. And we are out.